Hello, my Well Said listeners. I'm very excited for this episode because we are going to be taking the opportunity to look back on 2022's episodes and interviews and show you some clips of some of the best moments of the year. And I'm excited because, you know, we covered topics this year, everything ranging from campus cancel culture to campus anti-Semitism to some broader picture issues of indoctrination and censorship and coercion in communist regimes and in the military and in journalism. So I'm very excited about you know, these, these various clips that you're going to see, you can find the whole episodes on our website at speechfirst.org or on the, our YouTube channel, as well as any podcast platform that you listen to. And I'm also very much looking forward to 2023. We have some fantastic experts lined up. You're going to love the topics. Of course, it's going to be all things free speech and American culture. So get ready for that. In the meantime, have a great new year and I'll see you in 2023. What are some of the most interesting stories that you feel like didn't get enough attention or, you know, resulted in some seriously permanent damage, but no one's talking about it now because we didn't really see what the results were. So a lot of times, you know, we hear the story of the cancellation, you know, someone wants to take a name off of a building or tear down a statue um, and, or a professor, you know, is, is, take, is called into question because they make a comment on a Zoom meeting. All of that, you hear the first part of the story. We don't oftentimes hear about what happens afterwards, like whether or not the statue actually was taken down or what it was replaced with or who stepped in to stop the name from the building being changed or, you know, where's the professor now? Are they still teaching? So I'm curious, kind of what are some of the things that we, we haven't seen in the mainstream media that you actually think is really important that we, we hear from from this database? So first and foremost, um, the database is going to illustrate some trends that we've seen over the last decade. So where, you know, 10 year, years ago, we were talking about offensive Halloween costumes and cultural appropriation and, you know, a Greek life parties that had a, a theme some people didn't like, or, oh, please don't say the word stupid or lame or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, then it got progressively worse and progressively uh, more authoritarian and fascist on the leftist side where they were like, you can't say that. Um, hate speech is not allowed. And what they deem hate speech, you know, is anybody's guess. Mm -hmm. But essentially it became more where you aren't allowed to say that, do that, think that. Um, and if you do, you'll be swiftly facing repercussions, whether, you know, your student group doesn't get funded, where we're going to start a petition to get you fired. Uh, so it really has become more Orwellian and more aggressive over the last decade. So that's the first thing that the database chronicles. Uh, it also chronicles basically what we're seeing with regard to just how deep and wide and severe this cult cancel culture phenomenon is in higher education. And when we launched in late September, we had 1,400 entries. And now we're here four months later in January, we're up to almost 1500 entries. So we've added a hundred entries in four yeah. months, essentially. Wow. And, you know, what's interesting is that what we do on the database is we put, there are either two categories. They're put in a protested category or a canceled category. So you can see, you can search the database, only the things that were successfully canceled so that you know what's been erased or memory hold on campus versus what was they tried to erase it. You know, you could search the database under the protested parameter, and then you can see some of the things that were targeted but didn't quite make the cut. You know, somebody stood up for it. And then we link to a story um, for each example so you can read more into detail about it. Um, you know, most of the stories are, are written by the College Fix, but we also link to, you know, news websites such as Inside Higher Education or Fox News or what have you. But essentially, we're just trying to track 
And when there's something that needs to be updated, I will update it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's only one entry per example. So okay. we're not like, these aren't like, you know, repeating like right. first this happened, then this happened. It's just one entry. So if something was like protested in 2017 and they finally got rid of it in 2020, I delete the 2007 entry and you know, just update it with okay. the 2020 entry. So um, it's a really comprehensive way to get a, uh, you know, 30,000 feet picture of what's going on on these campuses. And we also categorize them by genre. So you could search just mascots or just oh, okay. building names or just statues or just honorary degrees that have been revoked or just guest speakers that have been disinvited, you know, so on and so forth. So you can really kind of hone if you have particular um, interests that that you want to look into. Yeah. And then so you said that there were you were tracking trends of like how pervasive it's gotten um, and also just how much more aggressive students have become with. And then now is it just students or is it also tracking administrators and faculty canceling things as well? If it's canceled, it's covered. OK, so basically on the campus. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, if it's removed, put into storage, fired, defunded, you know, re invitation rescinded or revoked. Um, we try to cover all of that uh, really as comprehensively as we can. This is about going straight to the source because there's no uh, network, no corporate overlords, no um, parent company. There's no, you know, advertisers, so commercial breaks. So right. there's none of these things. It's just Joe Rogan and Spotify. Mm -hmm. um, so the only place for people to target, because they're obviously not going to target Joe Rogan himself. I mean, they try to, but especially with somebody like Joe Rogan, uh, it's really hard to get that guy to back down from really anything. Uh, they just go right to Spotify as the medium, the producer of the con, uh, the distributor of the content. Right. Um, and as you kind of alluded to in your opening, is, is this a platform? Is this a publisher? Um, but that's who people are going to instead. And it is really about uh, the silencing of open and honest right. debate of differing opinions as well. And the idea, this is this gets to the point about a lot of these liberals. We had CBS Morning say that everyone has a First Amendment. However, uh, we don't believe Joe Rogan should have a platform like this. Well, then what platform should he have then? Right. No, that's a great question because we have seen this on college campuses as well. Many claim to support free speech, intellectual diversity, and then they immediately turn around and advocate for the exact opposite, put policies in place that are that are fly in the face of the First Amendment. Um, and so it kind of begs the question, because Neil Young and all these guys said the same thing. They said, oh, no, we we support free speech, open discourse, um, and we, we aren't trying to shut down speech. Um, we just think Joe Rogan should be removed from Spotify because of what he said. Which is like, you know, it, it, the contradiction is so evident. You're wondering, right. is, is the lack of understanding of free speech, is this, uh, is this something that's just so, so we've heard free speech so many times that it's like lost meaning and people just do not understand um, what it, how it should actually be applied or what it is or what it should look like. Yeah, I think so. And number from our standpoint, number one, we look at the news media and they very clearly have this vision idea, even if they know what the First Amendment actually says and how all these different groups and how it applies to all Americans, they only focus on the part about the freedom of the press. So they act as though the First Amendment really is only about them, especially when it comes to First Amendment issues. When it comes to First Amendment issues, the news media are very interested in stories involving themselves, uh, what it means for them. And they talk about the importance of 
the free press being able to ask questions and stand up for democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Truth more important now than ever. All these slogans that we've heard for the last five or six years. So that's one problem. And then you do have the problem of students in education and academia um, where they really also have this warped view. But collectively, they have this line that, as I reiterated just before this, was we believe everyone should have a right to free speech, but you shouldn't have a right to be, you shouldn't be able to say whatever you want at X, Y, and Z. Right. But really, it, X, Y, Z quickly becomes A through Z when you're, so, so the idea is really the only way you can do it is inside the comfort of your home and to yourself, talking to yourself in your head. Although, you know, the joke would be, depends right. on if you have an Amazon Alexa in your home and Alexa's listening to it. <laughs> but, but if you're saying something at work, you know, that's obviously one thing. But now we're in this debate now where, and it's important that we have to wrestle with this as really all Americans, not just those of us that work in the media and policymaking and advocacy about what is, what reminder a about what the first amendment actually is and the importance of it and number two what it means in terms of these platforms because we've allowed a lot of these things that started with very humble beginnings like spotify to become so big where they become the new public square especially with covid where we've were via government fiat we were unable to really lawfully gather as people in person so these were our option. Another tactic that I think is really important to talk about. So we've talked about um, how language is used against us, how, how they want to change language um, with, with technology, using modern technology to tamp down on free speech and expression. Um, but there's also, well, there's two more I want to talk on. The first one is the censorship of art and um, culture. And mm -hmm. so when we're looking at you know, things that we're supposed to aspire to, which is art is supposed to create that like inspiration in us. It creates that cultural, that intellectual, intellectual curiosity in us. Um, and it, it makes us really want to go honestly towards more the, the divine, which is where our, a lot of art is around. Um, and so what is this battle against art and culture that communist regimes had historically? Um, and why was that there? But then what are we seeing today? And like, kind of how does that square up? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think if you look back in history, I mean, it's it was amazing how in, into the weeds the communist parties got into the arts, the literature, et cetera, and, and film. I mean, mm -hmm. so Lenin, um, in a famous letter to Maxim Gorky, one of the most famous authors of, of his time, called this guy and said, basically his the paraphrase was that I'm, I'm really worried about you because you're talking about these, this group of people that's against the communist regime. And I'm really concerned for your safety. Mm -hmm. So you think about that. You got the guy in charge of the country who's clearly demonstrated the willingness to kill about anybody to stay in power, sends you a personal letter telling you to tamp it down, bud, or something, something bad's going to happen. And wow. Stalin, you know, same thing. He would, he, would be call, he would call directors, playwrights, authors, and make sure that either he was portrayed in a very good light or mm -hmm. the Communist Party writ large was, you know, dictating what was what was permissible and what was not. I think a lot of it today is, you know, we, I think a lot of artists self-censor. They don't, I think a lot of them don't say what they, they want to, they, what they believe in some cases. I think the ones who do, you know, you've heard a lot of actors talking, you know, you know, talking or complaining about, well, I'm a conservative, so I'm getting 
I'm not getting any job offers or offers or anymore, or I'm not going to make this film because it could, you know, could cause some, you know, some issue. Uh, I just read an article. I forgot the the guy's name, but it was about this guy who played in the band Mumford and Son. And oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he had to leave the band because he didn't feel he agreed with some of the things that was going on with the work he was trying to do and the things he wanted to say. So I think I think it's sad. I mean, it really is. You know, the art should, again. It should be a place you can escape from. Mm-hmm. You know, all the politics that we hear all the time. But it's in, it's in the arts. It's in sports where you, you know, I love watching football. But every time I turn it on, there's there's something. There's some slogan. Somebody's doing right. something. I mean, again, free speech. You're welcome to it. But I mean. Political, I mean, why do we have to do that during a football game? Right. Well, I just want to watch the game. Or if I want to go to a concert, I don't want to hear politically correct you know, a, a songs or whatever, or something that somebody, you know, either the, the academy itself now yeah. or whoever is telling me that this is good enough. This is what you should hear. You don't need to hear anything that, you know, we don't agree with. And we yeah. limit all this to go that way. And I think the goal then is to essentially just brainwash us into a certain type of culture. Like the more you hear it, the more you're exposed to these ideas, the more likely you're just going to like follow suit and, you know, think that this is normal. They're normalizing every, every like progressive idea or woke idea that they have specifically to get everyone to fall in line and say, this is the new normal now. You can't escape it. Um, and this is the culture that you're going to embrace. You can't escape that either. So like tearing down statues, you know, changing history, all of this is like kind of goes back into the cultural, um, the cultural push that they're trying to create. Yeah. And don't forget, you know, again, all, all the stuff that we're talking about has been done before. Maybe the technology. Was exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Stalin was famous for photoshopping guys out of favor, out of pictures that, you know, he was in with them. You know, he, you know there's several famous pictures just like that, where he, this guy was out of favor or he, or he executed them or he hmm. is rewriting history to make this guy, you know, a, a terrible person, human being, because he ran afoul of, of Stalin's paranoia. And, you know, we, you know, we seem to be, you know, allowing ourselves, that's the same type of thing to happen to us. You know, we're not really, you know, fighting for our side of what we believe is correct. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you mentioned the playwrights and the musicians um, in those times. Um, but there's also, you know, all of, like we mentioned, like the religious art that was all taken down, it was all removed. Anything having to do with the czars or royalty, everything was removed. Um, you couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and so like, I think, yeah, and you, you mentioned how like they tried to influence place because they didn't want the art to go away because that would be too obvious. It had to be subtle that the art still existed in its own way, but it was, it was censored and it was changed and, and altered um, in the liking of kind of whoever was in charge. Right. And I think you make a good point too about the religious aspect of it. So they're, they're, they they take control of of the religious aspect of society. They they want to eliminate it. Number one, if you look at what Lenin did when he took over and the Bolsheviks came in came into power, they literally just you know robbed and pillaged the Russian Orthodox Church across the country, mainly to finance her government. That was what most mm-hmm. people don't understand. They stole. I forgot what the numbers are. Sean McMeekin in his book, uh, The Russian Revolution, you know, really lays it out really well. But he talks about just the hundreds and hundreds of pounds of gold they stole out of the churches, you know, silver, tons of silver and the like. And then when the when the priests and the bishops of the country started resisting it, they killed them. You know, about 1,200 priests were murdered, um, 20,000 parishioners who tried to stand up against this this theft and taking of, of those religious artifacts was, you know, they were they were murdered. And, you know, it's just that if if there's a religious aspect to society, then 
that's something that people can escape to right. think about something besides the party who is really that's the that's the religion mm-hmm. you know communism is you know it's got an answer for every problem and the answer typically is something to do with the state or something to do with the party they'll fix it or if they can't fix it they'll tell you it's fixed and lie to you and say it's it's okay you know you must be a defeatist what's wrong with you i dealt with campus censorship probably starting three weeks into my freshman year in college i was actually banned from part of my freshman dormitory for dressing up as our former first lady melania trump for halloween and i didn't even know i was banned from this vicinity until people told me hey that that entrance that where you are right now um this is called the multicultural living and learning community and because you're here picking up your friend for halloween and you're you're dressed as Melania Trump, you're oppressing us. Um, I was wearing a Make America Great Again hat. So of course the residence director of this floor, mm-hmm. he he actually cornered me. He and other people cornered me near an elevator where I, I was just kind of pushed off. And I, I left, I didn't really think much of it. And then I later found out, yep, I was actually banned. I thought it was a joke. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, so that was wow. my first, yep, my first experience with censorship on campus. I was already outspoken as someone who supported free speech from quite a young age since high school. This is an issue I really cared about, but I really didn't get hit with the censorship firsthand until senior year high school going into college. So when I started competing more in, in pageantry and my competition announced that it would require women to have a, a social impact cause they care about, I, I just thought it was natural to promote free speech because the entire point about the, the social impact initiative, adding that was to empower the voices of all women in the competition, to empower viewpoint diversity among women. Mm-hmm. And I, I figured, well, if we're empowering women's voices, this, this impact initiative, this will help empower all women's voices because it's about free speech. Yeah. It's, about, it's about letting everyone speak. So I thought it was just the perfect fit. But then things got worse for me on my college campus. So I actually couldn't return to campus my senior year, partially because I received death threats and I was oh doxxed because I came out as a conservative. And by this time I was reporting for an outlet called Campus Reform, where um, yeah. yeah, I would report on, I would write stories and create videos exposing First Amendment violations, not only on my campus, but on other campuses. And another issue at this time was the fact that I was a Jewish Zionist who believed in Israel's right to exist, my ancestral homeland. And I had a professor this whole time who was a free speech advocate and also Jewish and pro-Israel. And students started a social media campaign during the summer of the, the George Floyd protests to try to get her fired for being pro-Israel. She wasn't even teaching on campus at the time. She was already on leave and students still tried to get fired. So I stood up for her and the same people who promoted peace and tolerance sent anti-Semitic death threats to me and they sent anti-Semitic hate mail to her. Um, But before then, 
I, I had a club I tried to start on campus called the Young Americans for Freedom chapter. Mm -hmm. It was a chapter of Young Americans for Freedom. And eventually I, I was allowed to have it on campus after I exposed, I wrote about the university shutting us down because we believed that the US constitution is the greatest form of governance. And that was part of our mission statement. Mm -hmm. And the university said that was exclusionary to international students. When I wrote about this, I was invited to stand next to former President Trump as he signed the campus free speech executive order. And people, yeah, people saw that on TV. Professors of mine didn't like that I was there. So things got pretty rough for me when I came back to campus because professors started tagging me in their social media posts. Professors did. Professors. Wow. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little bit um, more paranoid than you are about this, but I mean, you seem to be approaching this as a very like level-headed and mature um, take compared to, I mean, I, I, I genuinely believe that a lot of what the, the progressive left's goal is actually not to unify, it's actually to divide. And if that, divi that divisive nature of their movement starts to seep into the military, like the concept of unity is not even present in their ideology. Like it's actually the goal is to break it all down and rebuild it in their own image, right? So yeah. it, well, maybe this is part of the bigger picture here. I don't know. <laughs> No, no, I, I, I think you're really, you know, talking about some realities here, you know, that the political agenda is more important, right, mm -hmm. on their plate, it has a higher priority than the potential damage they're doing to the military itself, right. So just as an example, and this, you know, goes back many years now, if, if we wanted to normalize, which has now happened in the country, homosexual marriage, okay. Mm -hmm. The 50 states were a great construct by the founding founders so that the citizens of each state could elect their own, you know, kind of autonomous, you know, governing structure within the state. But we were all unified in these mm -hmm. states under a common federal government, right? But you had these, these wonderful examples, you know, now 50 of different models, you know, different economic and tax structures, and rules for whatever, gun ownership or those sorts of things. So a lot of these things were supposed to remain at the state level. Well, if you yeah. come in at the federal level and you have an agenda of, of normalizing, you know, same-sex marriage, for example, one way to do that is to use a federal organization, right, to pass a rule that would allow that. So now you have two soldiers who are male, they get married in a state where that was legal, you know, at a particular mm -hmm. time, but because they're subject to orders to the federal government and they can be moved around the country, it sets up this court contest where do they have, you know, visitation rights and benefits and, you know, this healthcare shared and all those things, irrespective of what the state in which they were uh, assigned you know, with, with the right. citizens of that state. So I'm using that as an example where somebody coming in with this divisive ideology, whatever that might be, right, can leverage or exploit the military as a rules following, salute smartly carried out right, sort exactly. of organization to impose their agenda on the country as a whole and bypass, you know, local interests, uh, the, the, the desires or the political will of the citizens of a particular state or even their own governing structure in that state. And, and so this, to your point now, right, points out how somebody can be uh, so uncaring of the damage that they might be causing and are likely causing in such a critically important organization as the U.S. military, right, that they're trying to stamp their own 
desires, you know, their political agenda on these organizations to, I think, the, the greater harm of the country as a whole. So, so I kind of want to touch a little bit on, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, judicial, the importance of objectivism and neutrality. Um, and I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on the justices themselves. Do you think there's kind of just a general, do you think there is an understanding and an acknowledgement on their parts that how the of the importance of this for the legitimacy of the court is there an effort a concerted effort on their parts to to maintain objectivity and neutrality yes i think so i, th I think all nine justices would agree with that statement um they would disagree in how they'd go about trying to achieve <laughs> that neutrality um but i think they'd all agree with it and you, you see a number of justices um in recent years we've seen thomas barrett roberts Breyer. Uh, Breyer has a new has a book out in the last year that I reviewed for one of the newspapers, I think the Wall Street Journal, uh, or no, uh, scratch that. Uh, it's probably in Commentary Magazine. Um, <laughs> reviewing Breyer's late, yeah, it was in Commentary Magazine. Uh, reviewing Breyer's last book, a lot of efforts to um, to to defend the court's perception, its neutral, its neutrality. Um, but they have real headwinds, um, on, especially on the left, but also on the right among, uh, I think, some who want the court to do too much. At the same time, we have really interesting debates among conservative legal thinkers about the Constitution. Adrian Vermeule has his new book out on what he calls common good constitutionalism, which envisions a much greater role for all parts of government, but including the Supreme Court to sort of affirmatively pursue notions of the common good that aren't necessarily spelled out specifically in the constitution. Uh, before right. him, you had uh, libertarians sort of arguing for a broader role of the court. You've had uh, my, my friend Hadley Arcus, uh, a great constitutional thinker himself, for a long time urging the court to, to do much more in service of natural law. Um, I disagree with all these folks at some level, but I agree with them that it's that you do have to understand the Constitution, you do have to have a sense of the principles that were yeah. protected by the Constitution. Justice Thomas had a great line once in a law review article before he was a justice. He said, this isn't a choice between good intentions and good institutions, between principles and institutions. It's, it's about the institutions that embody good principles. And that's what our institutions were created to do. So you do have to understand a little bit of what the founders' actual intentions were. At the end of the day, I think the right answer is that the, they were the founders were, were Republicans, lowercase r Republicans. Um, they were they were Republicans in the sense of how they understood their institutions, how they understood the duty of office holders, the duty of citizens, um, mm -hmm. and what our government was created to achieve. Um, and that that in itself is a longer podcast, I suppose. But I, I think you have to, I think each of the judges and justices comes to the court with a sense of what kind of country are we? What were our institutions created to do? Uh, and, and they read the constitution through those lenses. Is there any solution that you would recommend for, or would you recommend a set you know, schedule of, of classes or some sort of mandated constitutional law throughout the three years? Or what would be the next step to kind of reconcile these issues? I, so I, I, I'm a big advocate for more constitutional law. I think it it's, would behoove every American to really get a deep dive into what the founding document contains, the case law around it. Uh, personally, I think at least they, what we have as constitutional law too, which focuses a lot on the 14th Amendment, due process, um, 
privileges or immunities clause, things like that, equal protection, those are really important and undergird a lot of kind of the social conversations we're, we're having about social policy right now. So I think that would be really helpful to require or at least integrate more into that 1L course. Hmm. You know, I think there is, I'm almost hesitant though, to recommend and mandate more constitutional law being taught at the law school. If only for the reason that I do not trust the teaching of it in a lot of these situations. Uh, I think you have, this is a common kind of something you touched on that's a common critique I hear from practicing lawyers, which is that law school does not prepare students to be lawyers. You learn a whole bunch of theory and then you have to study for the bar, which is when you actually learn what you need to be a practicing lawyer. And then you go work at a firm and they train you up even more and then you're a real lawyer. So I think you have law school is entirely theoretical, which means it's very easy for teachers to be only critical of the constitution, only critical of existing structures. It encourages these students who a lot of them are already activist leaning to come into school and then they become even more critical, um, which healthy skepticism of course is good, but I think it goes beyond that. Uh, and it, I just, something sticks out to me when mm. I was in an election law class and my professor uh, made a joke, but he, he was serious, he thought, he said, well, I know it's gonna be unpopular, but I think this provision of the, I think the constitution might be wrong here. And everybody laughed, um, and I was sitting there laughing too, thinking the least surprising thing you could say at law school is that the Constitution is bad. That's, that, that is kind of the status quo wow. yeah. opinion of students and faculty is that it's bad, it should be thrown out, it should replace it wholesale, uh, or just render it meaningless through judicial decree. And so yeah, I, I, I was sitting there, and that was kind of this light bulb mo moment for me when he said that, and I thought, no, you know, the most surprising thing you could stay, say in this classroom to law students right. is, now, the Constitution is valid and legitimate and something we should treasure, even if it's imperfect. Okay, so I want to I want to talk a little bit more about kind of just the concept of free speech. And sure. because something I've seen a lot on campuses, especially, is how the concept of free speech, both of those words together, is actually kind of now being characterized as a negative thing or a hurtful thing. Like I get. I kind of get when people are like, okay, we don't like hate speech. We hate, we, we dislike that it's, or we hate that it's protected by the constitution and the Supreme Court continues to uphold this, which, you know, side note, it's because obviously the term hate is very subjective and can be easily right. applied to an enemy or anyone you, um, who is dissenting. Um, but at the same time, you know, this, this con now all of a sudden it's like, it's not going just like, oh, you know, we're anti-hate speech. Now it's like, we're anti-free speech because free speech is bad. And it's, I find that it's like a really, interesting shift that I, I didn't really fully expect. I saw a sign on Colorado State University's campus that said, if you or anyone you know has been affected by a free speech event, you know, here are all the counseling services available to you on campus, as if a free speech event had actually called some, caused someone emotional or psychological harm. Um, the next sign I saw was an Indiana University it had like kind of like those little yellow triangle warning signs. And it said free speech event ahead inside the yellow triangle, as if it was like warning anyone who's going to come up. And then it said ways you can go about approaching this event. And, you know, two of the ways, one was like engage in a non-hostile manner. And the other ways were like, you could avoid it or go around, find an alternate path. And I'm just like, free speech of it. It's not just saying we're a university that believes and supports the first amendment. Um, just so you know, you know, we're going to allow all of these various types of speech because of that. The universities aren't saying that they're saying warning, 
just FYI, don't want you to get, you know, worked up, but there is this free speech event going on. So if you do get worked up, here's some actions you could take. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on all of this and, and kind of like this, this negative turn to the concept of free speech. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you need to take a look at it where it's happening. So it's happening on, especially on campus examples you're, you're, you're giving us. So they're, they're trying to promote the, the majority rule where if, you know, if anybody has a different point of view and that's kind of the socially accepted construct, then, then everybody has to fall into that. Um, but really, where is that, where's that coming from in the kind of the list that you're doing? Somebody's offended, somebody's afraid, somebody feels like they've been emotionally hurt. So you're, you're setting a, a very new, very low standard right. for, for the society. So it's like, so who is now setting the standard for what's acceptable? The most emotionally fragile, some people who have the inability to deal with, you know, some form of reality or some. Which seems to be a lot of college students these days. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, they, they can't they're again mostly fragile they they've never been told no in their life so this is a whole new world to them they're come on they come on campus and they're experiencing different ideas that used to be considered a very good thing where people come on campus this is your chance to to experiment try different things i don't mean all the negative aspects of that but i mean you know learn different things that you've never been exposed to you, you come from a certain corner let's say of of you know northwest arizona for example and you never really left that part. Now you're in school in, in say Vermont. So you're meeting a whole different group of people that you've never met before. Mm -hmm. And you have different ideas because it's based on your, your background, you, how you grew up and everything else. But now all of a sudden, because you you think and see the world differently, you're you're not allowed to really express that. You got to conform to what everybody else is, is thinking. And that's the whole thing I think is really what it's all about is conformity. Because if anybody, we. I, and I don't really blame the students. I blame the administrators and I blame the faculty because they enable this. They, they're enabling people to be to be crippled as adults, in my in my view. They're they're telling them that you know you're not you really can't accept this. You're 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 not really old enough to understand this concept. Or if it hurts your feelings, then we're gonna we're gonna stay away from that. And uh, I mean, I've seen it in businesses. You know, the business I used to work at, they used to call people fresh college graduates. They called them all kids. Yeah, um, and then didn't really hold them to a high standard, and that that infuriated me. I was like, you know, that that is so demeaning, number one to them, um, but it's just setting a very low standard for them as, as an adult. As, as we want them to be a functioning member of this organization, right. and we're we're crippling them because we're telling them they're a kid and they really can't handle, you know, whatever it is we want them to do. America was, uh, we had a separation between the public and the private. Uh, used to, you didn't have to, in your private life, be political. But nowadays, everything is political. Um, I, I liken what we're doing at Students for America somewhat to a battlefield. Uh, we used to fight only on the political front. Uh, it was just straight on political attacks, fighting in the halls of Congress or news media. But now the left has taken on fronts that we've not prepared for. Uh, they've taken fronts that we have nobody there to fight on. Um, and so what we are at Students for America is we see ourselves as a, a supply chain to, to get the people there to fight in those fronts. Uh, I, I, one of the big ones uh, that I think about uh, TV um, and sports in general used to, you could watch sports and enjoy them without having to get a political message. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, I'm a huge Carolina Panthers fan. And I was disappointed because yesterday I got a message. Uh, someone sent me an article from Breitbart that 
the Panthers are now bringing in the first transgender oh, cheerleader. Yeah. And, and that's just one example of how the left has made every aspect where you can't escape politics anymore. Uh, so I, th I think a lot of these students are getting their voice because they're seeing the fight is coming to them. Uh, right. They're opening up new fronts that, uh, quite frankly, we're not prepared for. So what Students for America is, is we're a way that we can find those students and teach them where the front is, where the fight is. And then not only that, but we train and equip them with the weapons that they can defend in those occupations and in those majors. So that yeah. I, I see that as a as the, the biggest fight right now is the students are realizing, the students are yeah. waking to the fact that it's coming to them. Now it's we just got to get them there and teach yeah. them what's when they get there. Yeah, and I think I think that's absolutely right the way you've characterized it. Um, the left has seen the university system as the training grounds, right, for their movement for a really long time, and that's how they've been using it. Uh, the right has not really seen it that way, right? We've seen the, the university system as an opportunity to seek truth, to learn, to discover, to challenge yourself intellectually. Um, mm -hmm. So we had a much <clears throat> purer view of what the university was for. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can have the university system still operate that way and, and how we can utilize the university system in that way as well. Um, but at the same time, we should be using it as an opportunity to, like you said, train up and prepare for the battles that are going to be ahead of us. Um, okay. I mean, I think bringing up the sports stuff, our, our case against the University of Houston on their discriminant or their anti-harassment policy, which was super broad and you know definitely chilled speech on campus, we won that and it was actually written about in a sports uh, magazine and I was just surprised I said I didn't realize sports sports articles were interested in what's going on at the University of Houston with regards to their harassment policies, but I realized you know, especially with athletics programs, there is a concern here because. <clears throat> The left is definitely starting to take it over. They're doing a lot of mandated training on like toxic masculinity. Like you said, they're using um, athletics programs as another form of training grounds or uh, to kind of push their woke agenda, like either whether it be through um, pushing transgenderism on, on the cheerleading squads or whether it be, um, you know, taking a knee during the national anthem. This is something that we've seen um, left and right in the, in the last few years. And I don't think it's gonna slow down anytime soon. Why is hating Israel, like, let's just dive into that a little bit. Why is that part of the left's agenda? Why, why is that even something that they care so much about? Right, so, so um, I, the reasons for it, I think, are, are articulated in a, a really great Ruth Weiss piece that she had in National Affairs, in which she said that, that anti-Semitism is really, has to be understood as a political movement. That is, it's something that has political advantages for people. They get something out of it. Um, and so it shouldn't be seen as something that is irrational um, or psychologically disturbed, although it may have those characteristics, um, but that people rationally choose it because it gets them advantages. And along those lines, in a, in a study that um, that Albert Chang, <clears throat> Ian Kingsbury, and I did, we actually found that the higher educated people are, the more anti-Semitic they are, hmm. which suggests, that, again, that, that anti-Semitism is not driven by ignorance. Hmm. It's not that they don't know about Jews or don't understand the Holocaust. Uh, they know. Um, they just don't care. Um, and they don't care because they get benefits out of sticking it to Jews. And so, so why is it that this is a thing on campus? Why is this part of a leftist political coalition? 
because as Ruth Weiss says, it allows unlike groups to come together in a coalition. So how do fundamentalist Muslims and secular progressives come together into an alliance, hmm. right? How does, yeah. how does Ilan Omar and Bernie Sanders come into an alliance, right? They, they don't actually share um, some basic beliefs like about religion, um, uh, but what they can share is hatred of Jews. And that allows them to come together and achieve other common objectives that they may possess. And so it, it helps form a coalition of unlike groups. Um, and I'm That's sure the right has its own version of this, uh, hopefully not, not filled with hatred, um, but you know, all political coalitions involve right. people who have some differences who then have overarching reasons to come together. And they have to have certain common things that help glue them together. And unfortunately, it's increasingly becoming the case that progressives have Jew hatred as one of the things that helps bring them together. Are we going to get to a point where justices who want to make a point, whether it's to dissent an idea or if they want to actually, um, you know, or like make a ruling on something, is it going to be based off of uh, I guess political platitudes and like preferences and and public um, concerns rather than actually, which obviously this comes back to the rule of law versus rule of man, right? We want it to actually reflect law itself because that's what keeps us in line with what we're aiming at, right? Right, right. I mean, it, that's it. Really, I, I think I think Sharice, it really comes down to whether um, uh, you or one as a as a as a judge um, as a jurist, kind of what. Um, what your vision of of your role is, um, uh, and and I, I think that the evidence um, uh, as of the as of the framing uh, of our constitution uh, is that um, the the role of the judge was commonly understood um, as um, interpreting and applying the original public meaning of uh, the uh, of the constitution of the laws that get enacted. So it's the job, you know, Congress. Um, uh, Congress says going forward, this is what's going to be the law. Or, you know, back of that, uh, you know, the, the people through ratifying the Constitution say this is going to be uh, the the sort of the, the background and highest level law of our country. Um, and the the originalist justices uh, on on the court, um, including all five of the um, the Dobbs majority um, reversing um, uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, overruling Roe v. Wade. Um, uh, they have a conception of their role as limited to um, kind of unpacking that original public meaning um, in the context of uh, the particular controversies, uh, controversy. So it's not up to them to, to change the meaning. Like it's, right. if you want to change what the law means, you got to change the law. And that's not, that's not something within uh, uh, within any within a judge's power, that's the, the role of the legislature, the lawmaker, right, exactly. um, uh, in our in our society. Um, and if you, but if you if you detach yourself um, from that um, that role of understanding and applying the original public meaning, um, you know, I'm I'm not sure that any um, any alternative persuasive account of what a judge is supposed to do has really ever. Uh, been articulated, and with without that anchor, without a, that anchor in uh, the, ori the original meaning of what the lawmakers say uh, and how um, and what that 
meant as a public manner um, at the time, um, uh, there's a, I think, just an overwhelming temptation to simply read in your own personal preferences um, uh, into uh, your reading sure. of the law and just kind of start kind of start legislating. They weren't pushing back with to to debate with you. They were pushing back no. because they felt actually offended and hurt by whatever it is that you were saying somehow. Like, I, I guess my point is, is that there's obviously free speech is very important because it leads to the debate aspect. Right. And the debate leads to this dialectic that is seeking truth. You're trying to discover truth, trying to find answers. But a lot of the pushback these days is not via debate. They don't want to have a have a discussion with you about it. That's not the type of pushback, the healthy kind that is happening. What's happening is a very unhealthy kind of pushback, which is where people are taking severe offense to anyone disagreeing with them or taking a, an alternate position than them or trying to, in your case, in that in that specific example, trying to discuss a, a scenario that um, that touches on cultural cultural issues. Right. So I think that's something that I that I, I wonder if if folks do feel like maybe by pushing back they are participating in the debate, but really they're doing it in a way that doesn't actually create a debate environment. Right. right. I think the whole purpose of it is to make the topic of discussion too toxic to touch. Right. Right. If you comment on it, if you stick a toe out of line, um, you will be kind of raked over the flames in a way that makes it far too laborious for most people to want to discuss the topic. Right. Another example I think of, I was in a feminist philosophy class and somehow it was relevant. Someone brought up, we were talking about affirmative action somehow. And this guy said that he didn't think the daughters of Barack Obama needed affirmative action. Right. It was it was pretty simple claim, right? The most right. privileged teenagers in America who happen to be black probably don't need this thing intended to help might, you know, kind of oppress minorities get into college. It wasn't even an anti-affirmative action statement when you really think about it. Yeah. But again, jumped on by half the class, extremely oh, yeah. emotional, you know, kind of like, how dare you? Um, and, and I remember feeling the need to go up to the person later and ask them if they were okay. Um, mm -hmm. I think that is very different from healthy debate, right? Saying, I right. disagree with you. Here's why. Let's talk about it. Let's seek the truth. It's not often what's happening. It's a... I think that not only are you wrong, you are bad, right? Right. There you go. It comes from this yeah. idea that like opinions are kind of reflect the inherent moral character of the person who holds them. Right. Which of course true in a sense, but also very untrue in a sense, right? Most people's opinions on politics have tell you very little about whether or not they're a good person. Um, but I think we kind of we're trying to adopt these set of beliefs where what someone feels about abortion or affirmative action or tax policy actually is very important to whether or not they're a good person. And if they have the wrong beliefs on that, then they are a bad person and bad people deserve to be publicly shamed, right? And, and I think it's a really narcissistic, right? Because it involves thinking that because you hold the beliefs you do, you hold them because you're a good person, right? Not because, you know, you, you look at fact, you come to, like, it's a, it's a moral judgment. On right, yourself. right. And so it's stuff like this that really makes me get to the heart of why I wanted to have you on for this, which is right. when, are, when are donors, benefactors, financiers of universities going to learn or going to acknowledge that there's a serious 
lack of transparency here with what these schools are spending their money on, who they're funding with the universities, what kind of deals they're making with the government officials. Like there's no transparency, like no one. And, and it takes, we just did a report where we filed FOIAs to get freshman orientation material. We weren't even asking about funds. And it took a year just to get enough information to be able to actually come to any conclusions about anything. But it was just like, it was this constant battle, uphill battle to get information, right. to get universities to not want to redact. Like they wanted us to pay fees too, so they could hire a lawyer to redact information. And I'm like, you're not a, fe you're not a federal agency. Who are you? What's going on with this redacting? What are you redacting from freshman orientation materials? But anyway, my point is, is there's not a lot of transparency here. There's a serious opaqueness and no one seems to be calling universities out on this. Of all the institutions that we criticize, you know, we don't really call them out on the transparency aspect. So what are your thoughts on that? And, and kind of where do you see some potential solutions here? See, I think that is a, a real problem. And look, why would they not be interested in transparency? Because they want to hide what they're doing. I mean, that's, that's the clear and obvious answer. Um, there's two things here that I think folks should consider. First of all, um, it's not just private universities that are doing this, it's state universities also. Well, yeah. Folks should keep in mind that most state universities uh, are located in states that have open record laws, the equivalent of the Federal Freedom of Information Act that applies to state government and state institutions, which means those open record laws apply to state colleges. And alumni, students, and others should use those to go after those universities to find out what they're doing, particularly, for example, when it comes to uh, college admissions, because the vast majority of Americans, as you well know, think that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, the problem is with private universities. On the other hand, uh, a lot of private universities get a lot of federal funding. That gives Congress the ability to put in conditions for the receipt of federal funding. Now, I don't think Democrats who currently control um, Congress want to do anything about that. But if, as predicted by the polling, Republicans, for example, win the House, I think they need to consider putting in provisions on any kind of appropriations bill that provides any type of funding, whether it's research grants, student loans, anything else, or any university in the country to put in conditions that will require them to respond to open records that basically yeah. puts them under the same kind of conditions as the federal government is under the Freedom of Information Act. I think this actually is super relevant because I, there's there's a there's obvious connections here with with the, t the way things are being taught in colleges, um, in research, and with regards to schools of education and the academy and how that is trickling down through the educators um, in K through 12. So I want to talk about your experience as an educator. Um, go into that a little bit, tell us your story, but then also I want to talk about how that's connected to all of this and if there is any kind of movement that we can affect there at that level. I think that, you know, to work backwards in this situation, yeah. there is definitely something that can be done because education programs in colleges are at the bottom of the funnel. So right. when you have an education program, you have to take, of course, you have to take content knowledge classes. So I was a science education major, a bio pre-med and science major. So I had to take biology classes and chemistry classes, but I also had to take, because of the education major side of things, psychology, sociology, developmental understanding, and all of these social science classes. Well, it's usually the social science classes at a university 
that are the most progressive because they're soft sciences. You don't actually need specific and hard data in order to teach psychology. You can genuinely, and this is something that Freud pointed out near the end of his life. He's like, maybe I made some of this stuff up. You'll never know. And <laughs> the Academy that published that, like some of those last thoughts from Freud were like, yeah. I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And th that is true. And so your education and then also your, your nursing students are often at the bottom of this funnel. Mm -hmm. And whereas as nurses can kind of ignore that because no one's going to ask a nurse to give a lecture on social theory daily as an education major, you are expected to weigh in on social issues. That is part of mm -hmm. how you express the curriculum being taught. That's pedagogy. So when I look at, you know, kind of this argument on our education programs producing really leftist teachers, oh, absolutely because they provide the social framework for the backbone of your content knowledge, the flesh and the, the muscles that hang on to those bones. And so I think that the biggest thing that should be done is pulling any kind of state funding out of any state institution uh, that teaches left-leaning sciences or requires that in its social programs. And then number two, the idea that you should need some kind of special license to be a teacher is, is patently ridiculous. It'll be obvious pretty quickly to a school district if you are unable to be a teacher within like two weeks of your taking the job, if you got right. the interview. And I saw that on the ground, you know, to, to carry that through to my experience. Yeah. The teachers that I thought were the most experienced often had some of the least amount of fancy collegiate education. I have two master's degrees in education. They were both complete wastes of money. If I could go back and not get them, I would. Uh, I am astounded that $20,000 went into two useless pieces of paper that didn't make me a better teacher. Yeah. And although my undergraduate program was phenomenal because it was from a small Christian university who was staffed with professors that actually cared about building a cadre of students that sought after knowledge diligently, and then also built moral character to go serve and lead. Aside from that, like the actual psychology classes that I was even in in that university really didn't do anything to prepare me for the classroom. It wasn't until student teaching and I was with this old grizzled like student or my mentor teacher, Mr. Jones, old grizzled, wonderful, just. Yeah. You're like, you're, 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 you're you know, like on the ground yeah. soil kind of guy. I mean, like yeah. just excellent. <laughs> Didn't have all of the fancy academic stuff, but he taught with such skill and precision that only comes from years of mastery. Right. And it was that that made me think that one of the biggest remedies from a society aspect, because we can't just count on the state to make laws to remedy every situation. I want to encourage families, to encourage schools, to embrace the apprentice and the master style of oh, education. Yeah. It is, there with that whole democracy dies in darkness with this kind of philosophy, right? There, there seems in the, at that point that within the journalism field, there should be this sense of responsibility to the American people to tell them the hard truths, the things they don't want to hear, and to walk them through it and to like provide them with the information necessary for them to be an educated republic. And so the concern I have is, one, has, has any of these outlets like actually ever tried to go against what they think their, their viewers and their readers want? Um, and if so, like, what were the consequences, but, or is it just kind of this general assumption that, you know, we're going to lose a lot of money. We don't want to try. Um, and you know, the responsibility has gone out the window. And if that's the case, I would like to know, like, what are your thoughts on where this sense of responsibility to the American people went? Like, was it ever there in the beginning? Where did it go? And, and how did we lose it? 
Well, I think the latter is definitely a problem. Um, I'm not going to say that there's been zero critical reporting of Democrats in the Biden administration, but you know, I'll point to another example um, earlier this year when I the Free Beacon, which does not have a press credential to go on Capitol Hill, especially mm -hmm. at that time, I think people around the country didn't realize how closed the government still was to the American people under the guise of coronavirus restrictions. Um, so mm -hmm. I was able to, I, I, I had to be escorted around the Capitol by people who work there. And mm -hmm. the only people who were allowed on the Capitol basically were people who worked there, journalists with the Capitol Hill press credential and lobbyists who were escorted freely to and from offices with no problems. But if you were trying to do organize a tour, a school visit, you could not enter the government that you pay for, which is crazy. So I was escorted around the Capitol and I took pictures and videos documenting how many Democratic offices are still you know, broadcasting with signs on their doors. We are closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. This is in February and March, 2022. Now there has been a credentialed Capitol Hill press corps that walks by these offices every single day. I actually saw some of these reporters as I was wandering the halls of the Capitol. And one of them said to me, oh, what are you doing here? Hmm. Shocked that I, as a non-credentialed reporter, was walking around the yeah. Capitol. And I wasn't going to tell them what I was doing, mainly their jobs for them. <laughs> um, but I said, oh, you know, I'm just here for a meeting. They, they walk by every day these offices. And after I published how the Capitol was still closed and these Democrats who are campaigning in person with no problem, but locking us out of the government due to coronavirus, after I published this, you know, people reached out from other outlets. Yeah, it's a great story. We should have done this. And I was thinking, how is it possible that these journalists walk by every day and have never reported this? And I think there are a couple factors. One is, you know, these offices are, these Democratic offices are offices they work closely with. And if they publish how they literally don't work, that would probably burn their relationship. So that's, again, you know, remembering this is a, a person writing the story. Mm. It's also, oh, well, we see this every day, so it's not news. And, you know, there's a, an axiom of if nothing is happening, if nothing has changed, then it's not a story, which I disagree with. I think sometimes that can be a huge story. But right. then it's also, okay, so why, are, why have you never covered that these people are still not working? And that's basic, or it's just laziness. You know, th those are really the only ways to look at, at that example. And after I published this, the week after Pelosi said, we're going to start allowing tours, tourists back in the Capitol. So, you know, you have a press corps whose obligation is not to, um, you know, the American people, the taxpayer, it's to, you know, protecting their access journalism and, you know, making sure they keep their Capitol Hill press credential. So let's move on, because I want to talk about critical race theories, the push of critical race theory on campus through these various diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and these departments on campuses. How are they operating on campus? Because we've, I think just in the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about CRT and K through 12. We've talked a lot about um, the theory itself, like the legal theory and kind of what that looks like. But we're not really talking too much about the connection between DEI and CRT. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are. What have you been seeing on campus? Um, how are how are they infiltrating, uh, you know, issues with campus speech? Um, and is this a real concern we should have? Is it something we should be monitoring? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so this is a huge issue. So basically, more and more universities, <laughs> and there's hundreds of them now, yeah. essentially require a diversity, equity, and inclusion 
um, to, for, for tenure or promotion, or even to be hired, you know, you have to show some sort of, um, commitment to DEI as a scholar. Um, and that could take the form of, you know, um, anything from, (laughs) I don't know if you can see in the background. I can see your cat. It's adorable. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I'm having a cat moment. Maybe this will go viral, but that's, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it on the, uh, we'll leave it on the video for the viewers. Okay. (laughs) Oh, he opened the door. He's a Maine Coon. He's very smart. And he he just figured out how to open the door. So that's funny. Yeah. Leave it on the video. Everybody loves a good cat moment, right? (laughs) Exactly. Okay. But so essentially these, um, DEI mandates, um, uh, force the professors, the scholars seeking to be hired, seeking mm-hmm. to get tenured to either include DEI somehow in their classroom or, or in their curriculum or whether they're, you know, whether it's the readings they assign or whether it's they go to their a training or they, they implement it somehow inside their classroom, inside their ongoing training. Um, and then they have to prove that they have done so uh, to the committees that are in charge of essentially their future careers. Um, so that's how DEI is being mandated inside the classroom. It's it's quite insidious because again, they're like telling the teachers, the professors, well, unless you include DEI in your syllabus, in your curriculum, in your readings, in your lectures, and then tell us how you did that, right. Right, we're not going to give you tenure. <laughs> so it's a tough hill to climb for these scholars yeah. who may be liberty-minded or conservative-minded or, um, you know, because DEI is critical race theory. Right. I mean, I mean, in a way they're synonymous and not exactly, but in a way. So, um, the, and then a lot of, with the STEM professors, they're like, what mm-hmm. I'm teaching about quantum particles. I, I don't even know what this has to do with DEI and CRT, but unless you implement, you know, DEI into your quantum particle, you know, theoretical physics class, you're not going to, you know, get that raised or the tenure tracks. And they're like, the STEM guys are scratching their head going, can we just focus on our our math and finding a cure for cancer and finding a cure for Alzheimer's and learning how to explore the galaxy and, you know, what? They just want to be left alone to their science, poor guys and girls. Yes, I mean, I definitely self-censor myself. I actually was not openly conservative my freshman year. I still was a part of college Republicans, but I tended to, you know, I wanted to have friends. That's what my big thing was, (laughs) because I was back home. I'm from the Chicago suburbs. Right. Um, Well, it's a big part of the the college experience is friendship and camaraderie, right? Because you're all kind of in this together. You want to have these study groups. You want to be able to help each other out because, again, like you mentioned, you're away from home. Um, and for some of you, it's the first time ever that you've been away from home and sometimes out of state. And so it's a big deal. I mean, you need that, you need that friendship. Yeah. So I, I mean, I mean, I was, you know, I'm from Chicago land. I'm used to being the only Republican in high school, you know, being the one who everyone's like, oh, he's the conservative. Like I, that was me. That was me. So I was like, I don't want to go to college and have that happen to me again. So like I went to college Republicans, I want to be involved. I did, but like I would just like pretend like, oh yeah, I'm liberal <laughs> to anyone I knew. And eventually, as I kept going, I like it was like a coming out for me. It was like, so I'm actually conservative. Wow. I'm actually very active and want to be very active. And even in high school, I mean, I'm very involved with college Republicans. I'm on the exec board. If we ever need to do like media for a school newspaper, um, you know, when they're not calling us fascists, I do do media for them. Um, I'm the one who does it, so I definitely put my name out there. But, you know, so if I'm definitely, I'm on campus, I'm behind the table, this is called Republicans, I'm the one who should be very open and not be afraid to say what my mind in the classroom. But I still, to this day, like, I'm like, I just don't try and rock the boat. Like, if it's not yeah. important, it's not important. You know, I'm just like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, I don't wear political shirts to class. You know, I, I you know, I wear it on campus, but I won't wear it to class. Interesting. It's just, 
I just don't do it because I just don't want to deal with it. And like even my professor, I've won this year. He um it's he does a class about comparative politics, which is about comparing, you know, other countries' political domestic mm-hmm. policies to America. And we're talking about Sweden. Um, and he, when he was talking about one of the right-wing parties, he was just like, oh, they're just a bunch of Nazis. Don't worry about them. And actually, during the year, they actually had an election in Sweden. This party got the second most amount of votes in Sweden. I'm just sitting there like, what? I don't yeah. think, like, so that would, a Nazi party would get that many votes in Sweden. I looked into it. I was like, oh, they have a weird past. But, I mean, the Democratic Party has a weird past, but we don't just call them racist Klan members. I mean, right. that's what they call us nowadays, right? Right. So it's cool. just sitting there. It's like, you know, these professors, they're misleading students. It's an intro class. A lot of students, you know, they're misleading students who just call right-wing parties. They're just Nazis. And that that mindset definitely seeks in and it goes back to us too like what they say goes back to us because when they say these things about right-wing people about conservatives about the republican party then the students call us those things you know we had an event alan west was here two days ago and we had a girl in the back with a cardboard sign that said keep the alt-right off our campus punch your local nazi in the face today and who's the local nazi she's talking about us our school newspaper they're putting in their paper they're saying that we're leading a semi-fascist movement, like the president says that we're leading. You know, that's the reason they say these things about us, because the people from the top in our classrooms, in our in our in Congress, our president of the United States, the former President Obama, when they say the things about Republicans and right-wing people in the classroom, anywhere else, it comes back to us and it affects us too. So yeah, you know, that's our experience. And I can promise you, if I'm censoring the classroom, there are plenty of other people who are censoring themselves in the classroom, even in Iowa.